Amen. Well, we're going to be in Ezekiel 37 this morning. Uh, just the passage that you thought we would go to on Father's Day. <laughs> Ezekiel 37. Um, some of you may be familiar with a great uh, theologian and philosopher and writer named G.K. Chesterton. Um, he was a prolific writer, brilliant, brilliant thinker, um, but his mind was very preoccupied, uh, so preoccupied often that he frequently forgot things like keeping appointments, where he was supposed to be at a certain time. Um, he really relied on his wife in pretty much all practical matters to keep his head screwed on straight and keep him where, going where he was supposed to be going, something that I can identify with all too embarrassingly well, honestly. Um, once there's a, there's a story about Chesterton, uh, once he was on a lecture tour across the U.S., and he sent his wife the following telegram. Am in Birmingham. This is telegram, so it's before emails and cell phones and text messages and whatnot. Am in Birmingham. Where ought I to be? And she, she wired back, home. <laughs> yeah. Um, that's a funny example of forgetfulness, but uh, I think it's funny because we kind of identify with it. Forgetfulness is a universal, or at least almost universal, probably universal human problem, isn't it? Um, we forget, like Chesterton did, some of the most basic and essential things about our lives. Um, we become so preoccupied with one thing that we start to uh, lose track of everything else, even important, even significant things. Other things start to lose their significance to us, and uh, it seems like they just lose their place in our brains. Anyone with me? Am I the only person that's, like, forgetting things constantly? All right. Yeah, I see you. I see you. <laughs> yeah, I, th- I really think it's just a human problem. And as Christians, uh, we have this unique problem of doing that with the gospel. We forget so easily. We might not forget the mechanics of the gospel, right? We might not forget the step-by-step, here's what happened. But the gospel loses its significance in our thinking and in our affections, our feeling, in our hearts, Um, We get distracted, we get preoccupied, we get tired. Sometimes we get complacent and apathetic and angry and all kinds of things. And the gospel uh, starts to lose some of its significance to us. We start to forget. That's one reason why the Christian church for centuries, for 2,000 years, has built its uh, Sunday gatherings, its liturgies, its worship services around the story of the gospel. They're meant to to retell the truth and the story and the significance of the gospel, to remind us, to rehearse it, to to allow us to respond to it. Because from early on, the early church fathers understood that we are prone to forget this one most central thing, the centerpiece of the Christian faith and the Christian life. We've uh, probably gotten out of the habit of that. We've certainly gotten out of the habit of that in the American church in the last 100, 150 years to our detriment. And uh, thank the Lord, there's a revival of gospel-shaped liturgy happening. Uh, We try to do that here. We're not doing it perfectly, but we try to do that here every week. We want our worship service to tell all of us the story of God's power and grace and goodness in the gospel again and again and again, because that's what we need again and again, and because we are so quick to forget it. So this morning, uh, I want to look at Ezekiel 37 for a few minutes. And my hope, and what I've been praying for us, is that we would remember the power of the gospel and that we'd be encouraged and equipped and empowered 
by the gospel's power as we're sent out uh, to live as those who have been redeemed. And I know it's Father's Day, and I know that doesn't sound like a Father's Day sermon, and it's not, but stick with me, and at the end, we're going to get some Father's Day stuff. We're going to talk dads, okay? I promise. We'll get there. Just hang with me. <laughs> this is Ezekiel 37. Uh, if you don't have a Bible with you or don't, uh, don't have access to it on your phone, you can grab a Bible out of one of the chair backs in front of you. And if you don't have a Bible at home, you can take that with you. We would love for, for you to take that as a, as a gift. Um, we're, just, we're, we're glad that you're here, and we'd love for you to have a copy of the Bible in your possession. This is Ezekiel 37. I'm going to read, starting in verse 1. The hand of the Lord was upon me, and he brought me out in the spirit of the Lord and set me down in the middle of the valley. It was full of bones. And he led me around among them, and behold, there were very many on the surface of the valley. And behold, they were very dry. I told you, just what you thought we were doing on Father's Day. Uh, (laughs) This is an apocalyptic vision. It's a unique uh, sort of genre of Scripture. Uh, So sometimes, often, we dig into small portions of Scripture, just a couple of verses, and we're really digging into what individual words mean and phrases and kind of how they connect on a very small sort of micro scale. That's not the way that we faithfully read and study a passage like this. We read this a little further up with a bird's eye view, because an apocalyptic vision like this and writing that's, that's been recorded like this is intended to paint a picture. It's going to be full of imagery and light on details in painting a picture that helps us to kind of grasp from 30,000 feet up and help us to feel something that God is doing or something that God was going to do. So this is Ezekiel the prophet under the inspiration of the Spirit recording a vision that the Lord has given him about a future work of restoration and regeneration and redemption. It's going to be heavy on imagery, like I said, a little bit light on on details to help us feel the truth and power of God's work. And the picture that it's painting is the spiritual state of every single human being who's ever lived apart from Christ. It's, It's vivid, isn't it? And not all that flattering. Bones, a pile of bones, piles of bones all throughout a valley. Long dead, dried up bones. This is not someone who had a heart attack five minutes ago, and it's call the ambulance, get the defibrillators, let's resuscitate them, we've still got a shot. This is archaeologists digging up a 4,000-year-old tomb in the middle of the jungle, and these bones haven't been preserved, and they're just turning to dust. That's the picture. No life left, no hope of life, they're dead. Can you be completely dead? They're completely dead. They're super dead. As dead as you get. (laughs) That's the picture that the Bible gives of people apart from Christ. Dead in our trespasses and sins, as Paul will put it in the New Testament. It's not flattering. It's not pretty. It doesn't feel very good. If you're, particularly if you're maybe here today and you're unfamiliar with the church and the Bible, it's probably a little bit offensive. You're like, I thought I was coming with my family or my friends to hear a nice Father's Day sermons about, about how great dads are or something like that, and you're telling me that God says I'm a pile of bones. Yep, sorry. That's where we're at today. And it's supposed to, the imagery that the Bible uses to describe us in our sinfulness, apart from Christ, is supposed to be offensive because it's an ugly picture. That is the way that it describes us, though. Dried up decaying bones, turning to dust, no life, 
no breath, no hope, no power, dead. So it's a humbling picture. And it's important that we understand the humbling picture because that's what we need before we can really grasp the resurrection power of the gospel that we're, that's where we're going next. It humbles us. But the Bible consistently communicates, in fact, uh, I think you could be so bold as to say the entirety of the Bible is communicating the lengths that God has gone to to pursue and to rescue a bunch of dead, dried-up bones. So though it's humbling, though it's a punch in the proverbial face, the Bible is clear that though that's our state, we are still valuable to God and He has set His affection on us and He has pursued us in that kind of state. The rest of the Bible demonstrates that, and that's really what the rest of this vision recorded in um, Ezekiel 37 is going to unpack for us. So let's continue reading, picking up in verse 3. And he said to me, this is Ezekiel speaking of the Lord. The Lord said to me, son of man, can these bones live? And I answered, O Lord God, you know. Then he said to me, prophesy over these bones and say to them, O dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God to these bones. Behold, I will cause breath to enter you, and you shall live. And I will lay sinews upon you, and I'll cause flesh to come upon you, and I'll cover you with skin and put breath in you, and you shall live, and you shall know that I am the Lord. So I prophesied as I was commanded, and as I prophesied, there was a sound, and behold, a rattling, and the bones came together, bone to its bone. And I looked, and behold, there were sinews on them, and flesh had come upon them, and skin had covered them but there was no breath in them. Then he said to me, prophesy to the breath, prophesy, son of man, and say to the breath, thus says the Lord God, come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe on these slain that they may live. So I prophesied as he commanded me, and the breath came into them, and they lived and stood on their feet, an exceedingly great army. Then he said to me, son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel. Behold, They say, our bones are dried up and our hope is lost. We are indeed cut off. Therefore prophesy and say to them, thus says the Lord God, behold, I will open your graves and raise you from your graves, O my people, and I will bring you into the land of Israel, and you shall know that I am the Lord when I open your graves and raise you from your graves, O my people. And I will put my spirit within you, and you shall live, and I will place you in your own land. Then you shall know that I am the Lord. I have spoken, and I will do it, declares the Lord. We're going to stop for just a second before we dig back into this vision and take a little detour and do some biblical theology. Can we do that this morning? Uh, Because there's a phrase that appears that shows up towards the end of this in verse 11 that might be raising some questions for you. Uh, We're talking about this valley of bones, and the Lord says to the prophet Ezekiel that these bones are the whole house of Israel. I've already started preaching this passage saying this is talking about us. So maybe you have the question, why, we're, why are we talking Israel and uh, how does that fit together? That's a good question, and I'm glad that you asked. So we're going to do some biblical theology. <laughs> biblical theology is a term for uh, how we understand the whole Bible to fit together. What's the story that's going all the way through, and how do all of the parts fit together and inform each other? It helps us to read every part of the Bible in light of the whole of the Bible. And one of the things that preaching should do and that liturgy and worship gatherings should do 
is help to, uh, to form us and grow us in the way we understand the Bible and in the way that we read the Bible. So we're going to take just a couple-minute detour and, uh, and, and do that. So within the, within the passage itself, we have an indication that this is going to be broader than just a national ethnic people group. At the very end, the Lord says, I'm going to put my spirit in you and you shall live. You know when the spirit shows up and who God puts his spirit in? The Spirit shows up after Jesus is raised and ascends in the New Testament in the book of Acts at the day of Pentecost. And the Spirit is put into people from all around the world, every tribe and tongue and nation and language. Some of them are Jewish and a lot of them are not. That's good news for us because most of us, I don't think, are ethnically Jewish. Right? So the fact that we're talking about the Spirit says this is bigger than just an ethnic people group right there in Ezekiel 37. But to do our biblical theology... Uh, I want to I explore something that we read in Galatians chapter 3. And this shows up in other places in the New Testament, but Galatians 3 puts it very explicitly. Galatians 3 is talking about the promise of the Spirit and all of the covenant promises that God made to Abraham and to the people of Israel. And in Galatians chapter 3, Paul says these promises were not made to plural seeds, meaning a lot of people, but to one offspring or seed or descendant, Jesus. His point being, all of the promises that were made in the Old Testament to Abraham back in the book of Genesis, and we'll get there this fall in our study in Genesis, all of the promises made to Abraham, all of the promises made to the people of Israel, to David, all of those are fulfilled not ultimately in a people group, but in Jesus. And anyone in Christ inherits all the promises. Can we get an amen? That's really good news for us. But that helps us to understand the way that we can read promises and, um, and statements about the people of Israel being reconciled and restored in the Old Testament, like we read in Ezekiel 37. We can and should and actually have to, to faithfully read the Bible, we have to understand ourselves being connected to that because of what Jesus has done. Because all of those things are ultimately fulfilled in Jesus. So that's why we can go to Ezekiel 37 and read this picture and say, oh, Ezekiel's looking at us. The dried up bones that he sees are all of us. Whether or not you happen to be ethnically part of the people of Israel. All right, that's our biblical theology detour. That helps us read the Old Testament. That's really important as the people of God. We're, we're not, uh, as the church, we don't just stick in the New Testament. The whole Bible is for us. Um, and it's important to understand and learn more and more, all of us are kind of on this journey together, understand how to read the entire Bible in light of Jesus, the centerpiece of all of it, which connects it to us. Okay, so this vision has to do directly with us, people from every tribe and tongue and language who were dead in their sins, dried up, heaps of bones, decaying and rotting away, who the Lord is bringing to life. And that's the picture that we get in verses 3 through 14 of Ezekiel 37, this miraculous work of God. He's going to resurrect and restore the bones in a way that only he can. Because the bones don't do anything. Right? What did the bones do in that, in that vision? They just sit there on the ground. They're super dead. <laughs> the bones just sit there. Two things happen. Ezekiel, as he's commanded speaks the word of the Lord over the bones, and they're brought to life, and then God breathes into them and puts his breath in them. That's symbolic of the Holy Spirit. 
That's all God's work. The bones don't do anything. I don't think we have to stretch the analogy very far to understand where that's going, right? We're dead in our sins. We can't do anything to make ourselves alive. We can't do anything to make ourselves right with God. We can't do anything to span the gap between sinful humanity and holy, righteous God. God does all the work. God condescends to us, pursues us, brings us to life, and draws us to himself. That's a beautiful, gracious work of God because he doesn't have to do that. The bones don't do anything. We just sang this. Rock of ages, nothing in my hand I bring. Simply to the cross I cling. There's nothing good that we do, nothing good that we are. Nothing brings us to life. Only the gracious work of God resurrecting what's dead brings us to life. And the picture is, again, vivid and kind of punchy because these bones don't get raised up to be like zombies, right? There's been this fascination with zombies in cinema in the last, like, 15 years, right? Movies and TV shows and series, all this stuff. Everything is zombies. Everything is undead. And so people die of some crazy, mysterious virus that no one understands, whatever. Sounds like 2020. Uh, (laughs) Everyone gets sick with this virus that no one sees coming. Everyone dies. And then suddenly they start popping up as these like undead, undead zombies. And they can't think and they don't talk and they don't feel anything. Basically, all they can do is wander around trying to bite stuff. That's the, that's the picture we have of resurrection uh, in our culture. But Ezekiel 37 is not the walking dead. Ezekiel 37 is full-on resurrection, right? Like these bones are raised up to life. They start breathing. They get sinews. That's like tendons and ligaments, muscles, skin, breath in them. And they're raised up to be an army that knows the Lord. They're doing something. They're thinking. They're feeling This is full-on, miraculous resurrection. Not half-dead zombie just waiting to go back down when you drive a stake through it or whatever you do. This is full resurrection, fully and miraculously alive. What was dead is now alive. That's the metaphor that the Bible chooses, that God has given uh, to us to understand the work he does in us. That's the kind of power that's at work in us. That's the kind of power that God has, has demonstrated towards us and for us to bring us to life. And it's still at work in us. That power doesn't just quit. It doesn't say you're alive. All right, figure it out. That's, that power is now the life that's within us. And that's what we see at the end of this, uh, at the end of this vision. Because what was formerly a pile of decaying, dried-up, dead bones is now an exceedingly great army that knows the Lord. That knowing is, uh, is bigger than just an intellectual grasp. When we read that in the Bible, when we read that we're knowing the Lord, knowing someone, knowing something, it's not smaller than theology. It's not smaller than intellect, grasping something with our minds, but it's so much bigger. They don't just intellectually know the Lord. Their affections have been awakened for God and turned towards God. There's an intellectual and a relational and an affectionate kind of knowing. All of us gets turned towards God. That's the miraculous work of the Spirit. This exceedingly great army is brought to life to know God like that. That means they're worshipers of God. 
They're brought to life to be and do something for the glory of God. That's what's happening. The New Testament actually illumines us as to what that looks like and kind of how it, how it works. Uh, what this army, if you will, is supposed to be and supposed to do. Because remember, Ezekiel 37, this apocalyptic vision, is a little short on details. So other parts of Scripture help us to understand exactly what this means now that we've been raised up to join this army. This is Ephesians chapter 2, starting in verse 1. This is a well-known passage. We'll have it up on the screen if you want to follow along there. Otherwise, you can turn there yourselves. You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. That sounds like Ezekiel. Following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. As that ugly picture again. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you've been saved. And raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you've been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It's the gift of God. Not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. You were dead. You've been brought to life through nothing that you ever did or ever could do, but purely by the gracious, merciful, loving work of God for good works. That's what this army does. That's what worship looks like. We're raised to life to be an army of people whose lives are laid down, whose every breath is lived for the glory of the one who brought us to life. That's why it's such good news that the same resurrection power that brings us to life keeps on working in us. Because just like we can't create life out of our dead, dry bones, we can't create good works. We can't create lives of worship for the glory of God without God's power and life working in us and flowing through us. The old has passed away, and the new has come. And the new is defined by and empowered by the same power that raised us from the dead. So we're part of an army that's raised up to know the Lord like that. To know him with our minds, to love him with our hearts, and to obey him with our hands. That should sound a lot like our mission statement to you. That's, that's how we talk about growing in the gospel. Understand it, grasp it, appreciate it, love it. Have our affections changed by it for Jesus. And it goes from our head to our hearts to our hands, and we walk it out, we live it out with the good works that were prepared for us beforehand and that God is now graciously working in us to create. That's the gospel. That's the gospel in a vision recorded in Ezekiel 37 about a bunch, a, a bunch of piles of bones. But that's the power that's at work in us. That's what God has done for us. That's what God continues to do in us and for us. We're brought to life. Our hope is restored. 
And we are empowered to do and be exactly what God has called us to do and be as his people. Praise God. If you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, um, I'm really glad that you're here. We want you to be here. But according to the Bible, you're going to love me for saying this, according to the Bible, if you're not a Christian, you're still a pile of dead, dried up bones. But you don't have to stay there. God offers the same resurrection life and this same experience of resurrection to you. You can be brought to life this morning. You can pass from death to life. You can, um, you can move from being, as Ephesians described it, a child of God's wrath on an inevitable pathway to eternal destruction. You can move from that to fully alive, to know the Lord, and to experience life to the full and life everlasting with God. The only thing that's required of us is that we repent of our sins, which means acknowledging and agreeing with God about our sin and what it is, and turning from our sin in faith to Jesus, trusting Jesus for forgiveness and salvation from the penalty of our sin. You can do that in your seat right here, right now. You don't have to say anything. You don't have to walk an aisle. You can do any of that. That's fine. But you can pass from death to life. You can be resurrected in your chair right this moment. And if you have questions about that, or if you're confused about that, or you've never heard some of this before, that's okay too. And we'd love to talk to you about that. I'll be around here after the service. You can come and talk to me. If you came with someone, ask them your questions, talk to them. I guarantee you that there is nothing we would rather do on Father's Day 2022 than talk to you about the gospel and how you can pass from death to life in Jesus Christ. But for those of us who are Christians, as we're reminded of the gracious and powerful work of the gospel in us. What are we supposed to do? Where do we go from here? One probably obvious answer to that is that we're supposed to pursue knowing and worshiping God. That's the purpose that we're raised, to, uh, the purpose for which we're resurrected, to be an exceedingly great army that knows that the Lord is God, that knows God. That's why he's brought us to life. That's gospel growth. We do that through the word. Right? We do that through Scripture. That's how everything else that, uh, that flows out of the gospel, that's how everything that we're called to um, as people who have been redeemed and restored by the gospel, everything flows out of knowing God from the scripture. Uh, let me read a passage from Colossians chapter 3. This will be up on the screen as well that helps us to understand this a little bit. If then you have been raised with Christ, really the the, the words at the beginning of that phrase would probably be better read, since you've been raised with Christ, since this is your reality, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, because of this truth, because of your new identity in Christ, because of who you are and what you are increasingly knowing about yourself and about God. Therefore, put to death what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these you too once walked when you were living in them. 
But now you must put them all away, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Do you hear the same kind of language? Death and life, death and life, death and life. And it's because of this new identity and this new life in Christ that we're called to put off the old and put on the new. We're called to walk in the power of the gospel in keeping with our identity in the gospel. But right at the beginning of Colossians 3, we're told, since you've been raised with Christ, and before we're told, stop doing this stuff, we're called to seek the things that are above. We're called to know the Lord. Does that sound familiar? That's where the power comes from. Set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. Pursue knowing, truly, holistically knowing the Lord. Head, heart, and hands. Then we will do and be what the gospel calls us to do and be. And back in Ezekiel 37, what was it that brought the bones to life in the first place? The word of the Lord. That is our source of life. That is our source of sustenance. There's a reason that the Bible talks about itself in terms of food and life. So we pursue knowing God through the word. That's the first way that we walk out our resurrection life and calling. But on that note, let me stop and talk to dads for just a minute because it is Father's Day, and I promised you we would get here, didn't I? But there is something, there is a a sort of an implication of this that's really unique to dads. Um. It reminds us as fathers of our calling to our families. We've got the privilege and the responsibility of leading a little family, a little collection of dead, dried up bones. Maybe we don't want to think about our kids that way. I love my little toddler, but he's a little pile of bones. Sorry, Asaph. (laughs) If you hear this sometime in your future, hopefully I've explained this to you by then, but... (laughs) but that's what we do. That's what we're called to do. That's what families are. How do the bones come to life? By hearing the word of the Lord. Dads have the unique responsibility of leading their families in uh, saturating themselves in the word of the Lord. That's how the bones come to life. Dads, parents, you're not responsible for your kids repenting and believing in Jesus and following Jesus. Can't do it. Only God can do that. But we do have the calling, uniquely as dads, to make sure that our families are being steeped in and formed in the word of the Lord. We got to take that calling seriously. Let me say to those in the room who are uh, maybe not involved in in, in that kind of ideal situation, right? Because there are single moms who are part of our church, and there's no uh, husband and dad to do this. There might, be, uh, there might be people here today whose husband or whose father is disengaged spiritually or not a Christian, all kinds of things. God doesn't need perfect dads to get this done. The Bible is full of stories, truly full of stories of people who are uh, brought to life in the Lord and who do great things for the Lord without any sort of, of um, faithful fatherly presence in their house. God is not reliant on great dads. 
If he were, everyone would be in trouble. So rest assured, God can and will do the work that he wants to in your children, regardless of whether dad is doing this. But dads, let's not let that fact that God is not dependent on us abdicate us from our responsibility. We have a beautiful and unique calling and opportunity to shepherd little piles of dead, dry bones and to speak the word of the Lord to them that brings life. So let's do it. And it's worth the effort. I know that it's hard. I know that you're tired when you've worked six 11-hour days in a row and you just want to be able to crash on the couch for an hour and then go to bed. I get it, genuinely. But it is worth the effort to invest and to shepherd and to disciple your family and your children. And let me encourage you by saying that you can start small. I know sometimes we hear something like this and we just see the ideal. This is what I should be doing way out there and I'm way back here. And I've never read the Bible to my kids. How am I supposed to do that? God calls us to be faithful where we are right now. God works in us in small steps of faithfulness and growth. That's what sanctification is. So if you're sitting here going, that's daunting, I don't do any of this, buy a copy of the Jesus Storybook Bible or come see me and I will get you a copy of the Jesus Storybook Bible and read two pages to your kids at night for five minutes, three minutes. Start small. But let's lean into and celebrate the privilege the opportunity and the responsibility that we have as dads to shepherd our children and to speak the word of the Lord to dead, dry bones in our house. But many of us, most of us who are gathered this morning are not dads. But the gospel creates another family, a bigger family, and that's the church family. And every single one of us, men and women, Grandpas, grandmas, moms, dads, singles, students, kids, every single one of us in the church family has the opportunity and responsibility to do the same thing for each other. That's what church community is. Church community is mutual discipleship, pushing each other towards the word of the Lord and towards Jesus constantly, over and over, again and again, linking arms supporting each other, sometimes dragging each other along. Every single one of us has that calling and that opportunity with our church family that's gathered right here. You don't have to be a dad to carry the torch. Speak the word of the Lord, encourage with the word of the Lord. We do that on a small scale every Sunday morning. Maybe it's the largest scale, I don't know, it depends on which way you're looking at it, I suppose. But when we gather, one of the things that we're doing is reminding each other of the gospel, reminding each other of its truth and its power, and encouraging one another to respond. Colossians chapter 3, we just read the first 10 verses. A few verses later, in verse 16, it says, Let the word of Christ dwell richly within you. It's the same thing. That's the word of the Lord. That's gospel truth. Let it dwell richly within you. And as you do that, you're going to teach and admonish one another as you gather in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. So we just spent about 20 minutes in here fulfilling our calling from Ezekiel 37. Speaking and singing the word of the Lord to each other, reminding each other of the gospel, 
and encouraging each other to respond. And as we do that, as we remind each other, as we help ourselves and help our brothers and sisters to remember, we link arms as an exceedingly great army to know the Lord and to grow in the gospel and to go with the gospel. So CBC, let's remember resurrection power. Let's remember what God has done and what God is capable of. Let's pursue gospel growth with hope and with expectancy and with dependence on his power. Let's do it together for the glory of Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we praise you that you have brought dead, dry bones to life. You didn't have to do that. (laughs) You didn't have to love us. You didn't have to pursue us. You didn't have to breathe life into us. But you have done that mercifully and graciously. So I pray that you would help us not to forget. And when we begin to, would you bring someone alongside of us to help us remember? Help us to remember and to rejoice in your work and in your power and in your grace. I pray that it would form us. That it would form us into an exceedingly great army of worshipers whose every moment, every breath is lived for your glory the one who has loved us, the one who has saved us, the one who has brought us to life. Help us to sing like people who understand that we've been brought to death from life and help us to live like people who understand that we've been brought from death to life to live for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.